You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we take a look at the life and career of Roger Moore and his other most famous role as Simon Templar, its 1960s television series, The Saint. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bondzilla podcast, yet another new additions entering your ears for possibly the first time, possibly the tenth time. I don't know. You do what you do. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And uh, yeah, it's always fun to be be on the mics. Again, this is kind of a highlight of each week for me, and Mm -hmm. I hope it is for you and for the listeners. Even even if it's like the tenth time they've listened to it. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, all these episodes, I like to see the like the person's viewing habits, where it's like it's like oh, this is like the tenth time yeah. that they're hearing an episode. Yeah, or so maybe there's one specific moment. Have you ever had that with a podcast where you just want to listen to one specific moment again, and then you can't remember which episode it was in? No, I have a good memory. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, there have been some. I, it, it's more of the um, the title of the episode, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, especially because if you're a Kevin Smith fan, like then right. it's a little difficult because there's so many mm-hmm. um, that in the in the early days it was a little bit tougher to find out like which one. It's like, oh, what was the one where they were talking about like the Matrix or like the Pod People or whatever? Then it took it took a while. There used to be like a big like um, kind of like Wikipedia entry where it was like kind of like like somebody had put in like each episode and. Like all of like like a brief like little synopsis of what they talk about, mm-hmm. so it was a little bit easier to find back then. Now, no, no such thing, no such thing. Yeah, um, no, it's a so at like this point, like you know, I mean, I guess you could you could um, break it down, but you know, good luck to anybody who knows what the first appearance of the Rodans joke was. Oh, I th- I'm pretty sure that was probably the first appearance of Rodan. Could have been. Are you willing to put money on that, though? Yeah, I think so. Well, I just go back and I remember that, like, you know, going back to those early episodes are always really, really interesting. Um, you know, and when you go back and see the development, you know, because really it's just if you really go back through the podcast and see the natural development of, like, the Harrison Ford gag, mm. which was like, you know, when we when we first started, I was trying to do like all these segments of like Bond line to the movie, and like every episode we're gonna have our favorite lines, like all this sort of stuff. And then obviously, like what happens with any sort of series or or ongoing production is that the actual running gags are things that just kind of pop up, just kind of randomly. Uh, so that's always fun. Mm-hmm. But I think it's us with the easy too because of the specific movies. You know, I guess there's like kind of some of the tangents we've been on. Um, where it's like, but it's like you kind of maybe remember a moment from a movie. Yeah, it's kind of easier to to match than like when I go back to like the like the wrestling podcast I listen mm-hmm. to. And it's like, well, I want to remember, I want to re-listen to their specific match. But then maybe these, you know, The Rock and Steve Austin had like ten matches. So like, which one did? Which one were they talking about this thing? Right, sort right, of thing? right. Or it's like we have at least like, you know, if you want to go back and talk about, oh, like remember when 
that girl got the future fucked out of her, well, that's live and let die. Well, that's, yeah, but that's easy because that was the plot of that movie. (laughs) Right, exactly. Unless that was like a weird Godzilla movie. They're like, was that a Godzilla movie we talked about where it was like, you know, what was her name from the future? Mm -hmm. Emmy. Emmy was from the future. Yeah, I don't think, I think she she was from the future. She didn't see the future. No, there hasn't been any, uh, there hasn't been any sexy times in a a, a Godzilla film. No, I mean, really, they've kind of stuck to the, like, uh, the family, the generally family-friendly nature of, of, in in terms of that. Like, there's definitely been people dying. Godzilla 2014 came close, which I, I, no pun intended, Um, but, um, which I remember was also uh, pointed out by, I believe, like a, a t- like either like a Toho veteran or, or I, I forget the story, but uh, there was like the scene where you know they're in Ford's house and it's um, Aaron Taylor Johnson and uh, Elizabeth Olsen, previously twins. Um, no, they're and, future twins. Huh, what do you mean? Age of Ultron came out the next year. Well, whatever. I mean, who knows when they filmed what? Oh, yeah, fair. Exactly. Fair. So you don't know. Yeah, try it's... to step on my joke. You can't. You, you couldn't let it go. You couldn't just be like you knew exactly what I talked to. What you you knew exactly what I meant. But like you. But just, I mean, this is not. This is not the truth. <laughs> but anyway, you go by release dates. Will that was that was the that was the closest that we've had to sexy times. Right, and, and before that, really, like what, like the teenage dance party and like Hedora. Yeah. I'm sure that was scandalous to the the nightclub where he's like the guys hallucinating like fish people everywhere. Yeah. That there, there's probably some like a church going folk who would be like, that's, that's a no go. Well, remember the old men were watching them. Yeah. And then they were like, Oh, those kids and their naughty ways. Or they were just being creepy and being like, Oh, Oh, they're, they're into it. Yeah. Oh, either way, either way it's wrong. Yeah. Um, but um, and you know that was psychedelics and everything. So who knows what people are on? And then Jan DeBont's unproduced script had some yeah. allusions to sexy times right. in it as well. Yeah, some right. some on the up and up. Some would, that would have sent you to jail. Yeah. Um, uh, all Hank, over the place. Hank Azaria had marital problems. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose, and I'm sure they look like they they seem like they had slept together a couple times oh definitely um i don't know about um the our our lead characters i i don't know if if they had though she kind of seemed like i get cuz that was that was the whole thing right she mm-hmm. was like you know like what what did she do what did she do to him again not in the movie but before oh no 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 they no, were going to get married they were going to marry and he left yeah he left no she left no i thought he left I thought it, that was the whole thing. Is like he left to go do his like to, to for the worms. Yeah, or maybe did she leave? I, don't I know. know. I thought that was the whole thing. Is that she that she left to become, and then he's like, I thought you became a big time reporter, and then she's like, you're the worm guy, and then maybe maybe it was it, her. Maybe I'm just mixing things up. Yeah. I thought it was like I thought that's why she was like. Wow, she's a terrible person in that movie. If if I'm remembering that movie correctly, are Wait, we though? I don't know. This is why actually. we need to go back and re-listen See, so to, in to this our episodes. Yeah, we could just you could go back and hopefully that was one of the ten episodes that you guys listened to, and yeah. then you can find out what what exactly what exactly we did. But yeah, there's really no there's really is no place for sexy times in a in a in, in a Godzilla movie, really. Mm-hmm. Um, oh well, no, that's not. This isn't true. It's it's staring us right in the face. Clearly, the Mutos in. Uh, in 2014. Yeah. So 2014 yeah. really is the sexiest Godzilla it is, it is, movie. It is the most, you know, sexually driven Godzilla movie, to be sure. 
I'll have to add that into my um. I have to add, see how that feeds into my analysis uh, of, of the film Godzilla 2014, the most sexually charged Godzilla film ahead of its time. People didn't know it's the Godzilla film that they needed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree. So because really, like, I mean, Godzilla's not having any any sex scenes anytime soon. No, no. In fact, they joke about that in '98 in yeah. your favorite. Definitely written by a man line where they find out that it's uh, it's asexual. Yeah. And then it's like, where's the fun in that? Yes. I feel like that was in two movies recently we watched about like they're talking about asexual. You know what? It's in the film Evolution. I was about to say because I know that you I you recently posted like the, Evolution. The, great film. It's, it's a personal favorite of it, it is a personal favorite. Don't know if it's good. It's really funny. Yeah. No, but I was about to mention it's it's that same gag. It in, is in yeah. evolution. Yeah. Starring, um, of course, Sean William Scott, <laughs> veteran actor. Yeah. Who who are you who are you gonna say? Who's the other guy? Orlando David Jones. Duchovny. Oh, David Duchovny. Yeah. He's like you know it's like the TV guy. That's who like, a movie. Who like tried to do some movies, but like you know always return back to TV. That's a movie where I don't I think. People, you would never, you would always forget that Julianne Moore was in that, because it just it doesn't seem yes. like a movie that Julie. Yeah, see, even you kind of, yeah, it slipped I your mean, mind. I kind of remember it. I mostly remember the caca line. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's just like that's like one of those movies where you just don't think. Like, if you were to think who's like the lead actress in that, and you're like. Oh, it's probably somebody that's been in things, but you don't remember, like a Piper Paraboo or something, or like because it's like that's what two thousand, yeah. So that's like very much like it could have been easy, like any of those, like you know, same like the like the girl that was in Godzilla ninety eight, like any of right, those, right. like like late 90s, early two thousands actors probably didn't have the best time in Hollywood. Did like a couple of movies that people remember. How dare you speak about Piper Paraboo that way? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking. Enough, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one throwing her under the bus. And but also, yeah, no, also, Julianne Moore. also a movie that uh, has a weird animated series attached to it. That's true. <laughs> Joining the ranks of Godzilla nine, uh, 98 yeah. and Men in Black. Yep. Uh, speaking of sexy times, James Bond has a lot of sexy times. Yes. And speaking of people that have been on TV like David Duchovny. Yeah. We're talking about the man, the myth. The legend, he's Roger Moore. That's, that's a pretty good segue. Um, Been like so, yeah, that one. Uh, so of course we're talking about um, this is kind of pretty much the finale of our Bond actor episodes, unless I ever decide to find something else with George Lazenby in it. Um, so we've done, we've gone through Connery, Dalton, uh, Craig, and Brosnan. Uh, so now it's time to talk about Roger Moore. Uh, and with Roger Moore, we are going to be talking about his most famous role outside of Bond, the 1960s television series, The Saint, which ran from 1962 to 1968. Uh, now, I should say right away, because this is not a movie, this is a television series, uh, it's just got to go out right away. We watched two episodes of the show for this episode specifically, uh, so... And I know for those of you, I can't say internationally, but for those of you who are listening on American Shores, these episodes are available for free on Shout Factory TV, uh, which you can get on uh, your computer or your Roku or Fire Stick, whatever you watch. 
Uh, so if you want to watch along with these, I'll, I'll tell him right now. We watched season two, episode 27, The Saint Sees It Through, and season five, episode 14, Escape Route. Um, so if you want to pause and watch them or watch them after we talk about them, that's, they're available for absolutely free. Or if you want to sync up this podcast <laughs> to those episodes. Yeah, it wouldn't then, probably make much sense because we're probably going to What if be, it did? What if it was like a, a, a dark, side yeah, dark Side of the Moon scenario where it's like, and then we like solve the code. We solve or the puzzle. Yeah. Whatever um, the code may be. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be possible. But what would be really funny if it was like a previous episode that somehow like, like if it was like Godzilla versus Megalon actually matched up with like episodes of the Saint, and then we were really like ahead of our times. Yeah, people don't know that if you sync up the all the Bondzilla, all the Godzilla episodes, and all the Bond episodes, and you play them backwards simultaneously, um, you will actually uh, summon a Godzilla type creature. Yes, uh, <laughs> and, that, that very well may be maybe a future plot. Yeah, so you know, just uh, that. Wasn't, now see because like wasn't there like a thing about. Oh no, that was um, wasn't that the um, Mechagodzilla uh, Wait, two? What, what, what? Where they like there was like the the song and there was like a hidden message of like the bars of the song like. Man, this doesn't sound familiar. See, but then uh, hopefully no, this just, is one I of the ten episodes. I swear to God, it's like they like play something at like a different speed, I, and it's. I like, think you're thinking of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm telling you, man. I don't know. That's Maybe. a that's an episode. Anybody remember the episode where Nick mansplained? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That was Moonraker. As, as if I didn't know movies for some reason. Well, I, mean, I don't know. No, you knew. Well, you I guess definitely knew. Also, like you said on your thing that uh, you did like the thirty day movie challenge. Yes. And you said Spielberg was your favorite director. Yes. So I didn't know that. Well, I mean, the closest one, I suppose. Like, so if I, I had guess to you, pick, if so I, I had guess to you pick would one. be more. How is this an excuse for for well, your this... for your? Uh, I mean, like, there's. I don't Insolence. know if you've seen. Like, I know you like. What e- does? No, 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 no. Don't don't act like there is an excuse. Right. You knew exact. Of course, I know. Close Encounters of the Third Time. I don't know if you do. You and you said it as if, like, you knew I knew it. I didn't know you. Go knew it. go back. Listen to the tapes. All right. It was offensive, and I'm. I will take you to court for it. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So, are you ready to get started talking about Roger Moore? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so as traditional, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about Roger Moore and his kind of early days in the lead up to the saint. And then we'll discuss uh, the saint character, also known as Simon Templar. But first, Sir Roger Moore was born on October 14th, 1927 in Stockwell, London. His father uh, was a policeman and his mother was uh, born in India to an English family. That's kind of the most fun fact about her. Um, but his father was a, was a policeman. Um, and in his youth, um, Moore would actually tail along on uh, some some days with his father out in the the policeman's world, as, as it were. Um, you know, just tagging along and, and seeing what he did. And it kind of gave Moore sort of an inherent love for that type of, of work. Um, which would translate much into kind of the work he was most known for later in his life. Uh, but growing up, actually, um, Moore's first ambition was to be an animator. Mm. Um, he just had a little bit of a knack for drawing. 
um, and thought that being in, in animation would be kind of cool, uh, and it would be kind of different than just art. It would be kind of, you know, putting art in motion. He thought that was a very, just something that appealed to him. So very young age of 15, he actually got an apprentice apprenticeship at a, uh, London animation studio. Uh, and they're definitely uh, people who knew that he was doing it at that time, thought that he had potential that, yeah, he had a lot of room to grow, but, um, but he definitely like training for a while. He definitely would get into kind of a, a really good animator's role. Um, but more found that the precision of animation was was something that he didn't really consider when he was when he was um, pursuing it. And so he was someone who made a few too many mistakes on the animation cell process, which again is very costly, very expensive. So eventually he was fired. Um, from that animation uh, apprenticeship and right. that kind of dashed his dreams of being an animator or being in the, in the animation business and at that point he's again 15 16 kind of spends the next couple of years it's like kind of considering art as a potential thing but you know it's just he doesn't just want to be just an artist he doesn't want to just draw and sell that he still wants to kind of do something different mm -hmm. so kind of the art thing sort of fades away and he's kind of as he's still growing up, he still is kind of like, okay, well, now I'm just kind of living my life and we'll figure it out later. Uh, until a fateful day when he is, uh, one of the days where he's uh, with his father uh, on the job and his father is called in to uh, investigate a robbery at a local British director's house. And the British director I'm talking about is Brian Desmond Hurst. Um, who would, in a couple years after this, is like the mid-40s at this point, um, he would go on to do like a, the mo one of the most famous versions of Christmas Carol. But he was kind of a very working director in Britain, and when he uh, met Moore, because his father was uh, you know taking notes on the robbery and like what was stolen and everything like that, and he got to chatting with Moore, and he thought Moore just had a good look. Um, so he invited Moore to just do some extra work on his film, uh, Caesar and Cleopatra is kind of the traditional kind of classic, big, epic Caesar and Cleopatra movie. Now, um, Hearst, uh, while on the film, saw that Moore uh, had gained a, a pretty popular um, attention from the ladies of the set. Uh, and Hearst said, well, this kid, you know, his kid definitely has a look if he can develop some sort of acting skill. <laughs> You know, because he just didn't know he was just an extra, background right. extra. So it's like if he has any sort of talent within him, he could go on to be a star and a star that I would love to cast in my movies to get the the you know a female audience. You know, he's just there's something about him that attracts women. So he should be he's, in Hollywood. He's basically that's our Bond, but just not. You know, there's no Bond in the picture yet. So he's like that's our yeah fill something. in the blank something yeah, yeah something or other. So after the production of Caesar and Cleopatra is complete, uh, Hearst uh, offers to pay Moore's uh, entry fee and his, his schooling fee for the Royal Academy of the Dramatic Arts. So basically, I'm going to pay for you to go to acting school. Why don't you go to acting school? And Moore is basically like, it's it, he'd never consider acting. Like his father was very loved, like, film and, and theater so he kind of had just kind of a natural like well i know about it obviously and i know kind of how popular it is just like kind of the general like i know the passion for it 
he just never ever considered it. It was just never on his mind. But essentially, this was kind of like it's a free ride, a free schooling. You know, if it works out, it works out. If not, then I'll just continue to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So he decides to attend uh, the school uh, in the late forties. And this is basically, he essentially develops his persona at this school. Basically, the Roger Moore that you see, the, the very English gentleman, the, the, the kind of the British, but like kind of mid-Atlantic accent, and just the, even the eyebrow raise that he became known for mm-hmm. as a saint was developed all of the school, as well as he became good friends with his classmate at school, uh, Lois Maxwell, mm. uh, the future Miss Moneypenny. That's funny. Um, so... Um, more coming out of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts definitely now had an interest in acting that it basically was like, well, this is my newfound passion. This is something that I had fun at the, at the schooling and learning all the different arts and, and his teachers agreed with Hearst that there's definitely potential here. Um, I guess the teachers were more so on like an actual talent side. I guess Hearst was, you know, more on the look side of anything else. Um, but Moore was definitely interested now in pursuing that life. Uh, but again, it was more so just like, we'll see where it takes me. Um, but shortly after um, he graduated from the school, he was uh, conscripted into the, uh, I believe it's the, uh, yeah, the Army. Because Bond's a Navy man. But right, I was right. trying to make sure that it wasn't. Uh, yeah. So he gets conscripted into the Army uh, and specifically eventually becomes a captain in the Combined Services Entertainment Division of the Army where he's essentially overseeing more popular entertainers as they kind of go through Europe and perform um, for Europe after World War II. That was kind of a, a service that Britain did is kind of as they were cleaning up post-war and, and kind of making sure everything kind of settled out, they would put on performances in places like Hamburg and you know, Germany and stuff like that. So he was, um, he definitely uh, was very popular among his peers in the armed services, but he, uh, instead of when he was a captain, he preferred everybody instead of calling him sir, call him Raj, mm-hmm. uh, which got him in trouble with the other superiors because they thought like, oh, why are you not saying sir to your commanding officer? And they're mm-hmm. like, well, he, Roger, <laughs> Captain Moore told us that right. he was fine. We called him Raj. So uh, there was definitely kind of, again, even from that younger age, there was definitely a playfulness uh, to the way that um, Moore presented himself. And again, that kind of, he developed a lot of that. A lot of that personality, just he said, came from his time at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. That he kind of became Roger Moore. It was basically like you know, before you know he goes to you know Batman Begins. Before he goes to train with Ra's al Ghul, he's just Bruce Wayne. <laughs> right, right. That, he's Batman. <laughs> it was kind of like that for Roger Moore. That going into school, he was just some kid coming out of the school. He was Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so post uh, this conscription, um, starting into now into the like forty nine fifties, he's actually starting to be- try to become a working actor. Uh, but definitely more is very much on the side of long time struggling actor, uh, the type of actor who would get a role here or there, but otherwise was like washing dishes or doing deliveries and and basically, you know, trying to make ends meet as much as he could. Um, so this is also a time period where Moore um, gets married at a very young age, and that also puts pressure on him. He marries an ice skater he meets um, uh, as he's coming uh, going through Europe as part of the army. 
Um, and that kind of put a lot of pressure on his early career too, because the, his, his, they were like, you know, sort of young lovers, madly in love. And then kind of as soon as they got married, just kind of had a big falling out. And, you know, there was always the money issues and she didn't think he actually had talent. And, and there was like kind of, a big <laughs> so, and then there, these are some deal breakers. <laughs> so, um, it was the first of Moore's, um, many divorces, I mm-hmm. will say, uh, throughout his life. Um, there was one thing Moore had issues with. It was kind of sticking with one girl, mm. is what I will say. Um, but usually it was just kind of in the in the more falling out phase, and not as much like you know the affair thing. Uh, I think once he had an affair, but you know it's either it's that was been it happens. It's, <laughs> that was in the past. Uh, so he kind of the the way that Moore kind of goes about it, he tries to stick a long time in Britain. Um, but it's just the jobs aren't really coming. He does a kind of a few films here and there, a few guest appearances on uh, different shows. At one point, to just to make ends meet, he starts doing modeling work. Most infamously, he did a series of uh, knitwear ads, like uh, knitted clothing ads, um, that would come up later once he was Bond. It was kind of like, oh, like, look at this weird Maja Moore in, a, in you know, modeling knitting and modeling sweaters <laughs> and knitted socks. You know what's funny about Moore is, like, out of all, like, the Bond actors, he's the one that that fits the most. Yeah. Just, like, so I, it is funny to, th- to think about that. Um, So he does, uh, and he does a toothpaste ad as well that, that does come back. Uh, but by 1954, he decides that, well, my fortunes now lie on American shores, that mm. he's going to pack everything up. He's He's been uh, married to his second wife now, I think, or it's right around this time. And they're like, let's pack up. Let's go to America. Let's go to Hollywood. And once he arrives in Hollywood, he gets an agent and signs a contract with MGM for a long-term deal. Uh, but that contract never really gets anywhere for him um he constantly under this contract was always like very supporting role small roles one of the high like the highest he would ever get is maybe build third in the movie diane um and he's uh he said himself at one point at mgm rgm was NBG, which he means at MGM, Roger George Moore was no bloody good. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of, again, at least he was getting paid. At least he had some consistent work. But he, you know, Moore at this point was like, I'm definitely liking the acting thing, but I just need that next step. Right. I need to, like, figure out where I'm going to be. Like, what am I, actually am I? Because he, he wants to do well. He wants to be a star. Um, and he wants to kind of, you know, be at a point where he does have control over his projects instead of being on this like studio contract where he's basically kind of assigned roles more so it's like he's there to fill a role as opposed to being like okay well the role was kind of made for you that's mm. the where he wants to be um but he does find a brief first success in uh tv so this was uh, a 50 now we're in the late 50s and he does this tv series in america called ivanhoe which was based on um, sort of a 12th century sort of Richard the Lionheart era, um, kind of the Prince John kind of another kind of era of the Robin Hood type of thing, another story from that era. Um, And this is where Moore kind of found his first Brinkley of success, even though the series only lasted one full season. It definitely got him a little bit more attention, but it did also kind of pigeonhole him into being, well, he's a TV guy. Mm. Um, 
So more, you know, he does the series for a season. He notes that this series was full of like, he did his own stunts, but he was basically like, you know, he was, he got bruised and broken ribs because he was riding around in armor and he looked ridiculous on a horse. And, you know, again, when you talk, when we, you see these interviews with more talking about the past, it's very, that very playful more mm-hmm. like he just kind of has no qualms about kind of saying like, well, these experiences were ridiculous and, and I looked ridiculous doing them. Uh, so he does this series for a year and then he goes to Warner brothers on another contract. Um, uh, but this was basically like, at this point he was very much, you know, he had done the series that lasted a season. It was successful, but now he was in the once upon a time in Hollywood. Like I'm getting guest roles on Alfred Hitchcock's presents and, right. And all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, he would always try to find his way into films, um, <laughs> But he he just never got his chance in, in cinema. Like, it was just always, like, there was never a role that was big enough for him or the movies that he did play big roles in just were bombs. And it would always kind of go back to, well, there, we're going to fall back on this TV role. Because uh, in 59, he does another one-season TV role called The Alaskans, which, again, kind of only further cements him as a television actor. Mm. Which, again, it's like at this point, Moore is getting consistent work, and it's not like he's struggling with the bills anymore. Um, but it is still like, even with these other TVs, like right after um, right after the Alaskans, he goes into another series called Maverick, mm. you know, kind of a more of a, of a cowboy series. Mm-hmm. So this was just like Moore was very much like, okay, now I'm working. Now I've got some attention. I'm getting consistent jobs, but it is basically like, I'm still kind of jumping from a TV series to a CV series. And there's, there's never a consistency. I I, want to point this out. And this is always what's so fascinating about doing the show. Cause it always brings up other things about entertainment that Mm -hmm. like you think about. Um, and you're right. I mean, this sounds very much like the, um, uh, part of the plot to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and which Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you, you, if you want to like just kind of. Yeah. Uh, so Leonardo DiCaprio's character in the show, is, uh, in a movie is he was a former big star a cowboy show, left to try to do film, didn't really succeed. And then, you know, he's at this point where. He's essentially the villain of the week on all these mm-hmm. television shows. Um, and it's kind of like, again, it's kind of pointed out that within the movie, it's like, well, this is, you know, you're seeing like, you know, this is what you're becoming. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like your career now is like you're getting beat up by all the new stars and stuff like that. Right, right. Whereas like, it's a little different. I would say it's a little different. More, more was usually on kind of the good guy side or more of a recurring role in that sense. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that same thing. And you were about to. Well, kind of well what, what's fascinating about it to me, and it, it's somewhat related to the whole evolution that we've talked about on the podcast before about the notion of just what it means now for TV and like, you know, the whole fact that like you're a TV actor uh, has nowhere near like really any of the connotations that it had during this time that more was coming up. Like, you know, it would be one of those things where you're making a living. It's definitely nothing to sneeze at, but you know, there is that little bit of like, yeah, but it's not the movies. It's not, I'm not a movie star. Like, yeah. you know, it, it still is like, you're kind of like, uh, you're, you're still in that, um, the, the second tier, like right. well, that's kind of feeling of it. And what, what's fascinating about it to me is like, not only is just the notion of being in TV, just not something we look at in that same way anymore. 
but being that type of actor too and from a little bit in the public sphere but mostly in the cult sphere which has kind of now encaptured a lot of our popular culture and the way we look at entertainment is definitely not something to sneeze at and is something that is often as we see celebrated uh especially in the modern day so like the fact basically what i'm saying is like if you were like somebody who was just like a like a good character actor that was getting like just roles and you appeared as like the villain in here and the villain in here or you were like the hero in this like you're in a spattering of roles because everybody's like oh like you know it's like you held your own as a bit like a confident like you know smarmy hero or like a conniving villain it's just funny like not only is the whole tv landscape different but that type of role is not something that i even think we look at as something bad in fact i think we sometimes in, in now in retrospect you know with hindsight look at it as like we kind of celebrate Absolutely. those those roles and frankly and you know it, and it's interesting and maybe and this is why i have to go back and watch the uh the, the film a film that I, I wasn't as hot on as everybody else was but it is one of the things that i think is also like the point of that film uh once upon a time like even when you hear like tarantino talk about it like you know the fact that uh cliff it, it was a cliff booth or what was that leo's name and, uh, uh no because cliff is um cliff is uh brad is brad pitt oh uh, uh, like it's right on the tip of my tongue um What's the character's name? Hold and um, it, it's Cliff Booth and um, God, it's like right on the yeah. tip of my tongue. Hold on, hold on. We gotta, we gotta figure this out. Yeah, we're gonna feel really dumb because it, it, it it's, it's a, it's a perfect Rick, name. Rick Dalton. Rick Dalton. Yeah. So I mean, but even when you hear Tarantino talk about Dalton in that film, like you can tell, like he, like clear, like, and it's also Tarantino. Like he doesn't look at the fact that like that was like like you know having that type of career was like a bad thing necessarily like that there there is some value to that right so it's just interesting and then kind of going back to roger moore it's just you know i think that we will we we just in retrospect always look at that as like being kind of a very admirable and uh um just like a like a cool career or legacy i should say and i think it's also a reputation i think one of the things to talk about too is that that sort of TV and film being separate and the stardom of TV and film being separate, it lasts for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get to, like, again, we talk about, you know, going back to the back to the episode, but we talk about how, you know, Pierce Brosnan having to go back to Remington Steel and then, you know, and it's like CBS, like their, or whatever the network was, was like their whole deal was like, oh, we'll make a deal so that he can still be Bond and we'll be a big star. And Brock Cubby Rockley's like, I, I, my bond's not on TV. Mm. You know, my bond's not on TV. You would see him every week. My bond is a movie star, mm. and we're not going to cast a TV guy. You're right. a guy in a TV show. But it's like you even get into like you know the '90s and stuff, and it's like, well, Shelley Long wants to leave Cheers to do movies, and she doesn't really get big. Or like Kelsey Grammer like sticks on TV for 20 years, and that's kind of who he is. Like there's still kind of this reputation. It's like really until like. The modern age of like Mad Men and Breaking Bad is when that, that reputation like really kind of shifts mm-hmm. of like television is like a place where like movie stars can go. But do do you feel a little bit since we don't live in the time of strict movie stars anymore? And by that I mean like I think that the helps, time yeah. of now we've kind of moved like obviously we have movie stars in 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 a, in a different way. 
um mostly like a lot of them are you know by the characters that they play but um but we still have them it's just not like oh they like unless you're like tom cruise or the rock like you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. bill the movie right um but do you think that now since we don't have that anymore we have much more of an appreciation for the the TV actors slash actors who kind of have a spattering of roles everywhere, but are unique enough that they stand out, and that's why we like them. It's like, for instance, you and I and friends of the podcast are huge Jeffrey Combs fans. Yeah, uh, it, very similar, and that is a guy who like has like a, a a big legacy in like horror films, and like you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that was you know not a movie star, but like to a certain degree, like you know what what's so um different between that and then like you know having like a, sm- a smattering and a career in tv um you know back in the day it would have been kind of like you, you know n- neither of you have the star status but now in retrospect like we kind of value those roles indeed, a little bit indeed. more and uh, yeah it's definitely kind of uh, shifted in some ways but I, I just think that it's it is very interesting to go back and see this kind of reaction to you know more because even with um you know going back to the stuff real quick is that like for maverick he was actually like a replacement for like a leaving actor so Mm -hmm. like you know one of the stars was leaving the show so it's like okay we're gonna bring more and he's gonna be our new star he's gonna be our new maverick and it's you know it's gonna be like he's gonna help save the show and obviously that doesn't happen um but there's still that sense of like well like they're getting him because like they know like okay well he's been on all these shows maybe they haven't like lasted forever maybe they're not multi-season shows but he still has kind of some sort of you know recognition to the audience Mm. and maybe that'll that'll pick it up Mm. uh but then you know that that show maverick his his run ends in 1961 and into 1962 more is really okay like at this point he's like well i want to make something for myself now like i want to what would be the perfect vehicle for me and so he um, decides that he's going to look into buying rights to something or maybe partnering up to get some rights to something so he can develop a sorry vehicle for himself. So something that he feel like he would really good. And at this point, it's like, well, it's most likely going to be something television wise because that's where I at least have an in. The film thing hasn't worked out like he was again. He was at Warner Brothers for a little bit, but still the film roles weren't really anything noteworthy for him. So he starts investigating the rights to a popular British novel series, The Saint, uh, in which now we're going to transition into talking about The Saint. Uh, So The Saint, like with Bond, uh, starts off as a series of books. The author is Leslie uh, Charteris. Leslie Charteris. Um who was born in uh, 1907 uh, in Shanghai to a, a Chinese father, uh, Dr. S.C. Yin, and uh, an English mother, uh, Lydia Bauer. Uh, he grew up briefly in China, uh, but then the family moved to London shortly, uh, af- uh, shortly into his childhood. Uh, Charteris was someone who was a always interested in writing, you know, even from a young age and schooling and stuff like that. He always kind of had the writing on the mind. Um, and he was someone who, you know, he wrote his first book, uh, in college, um, and dropped out of university to start pursuing a writing career. 
Um, obviously, that first book, like it got published, but you know he still had to do a lot of odd jobs. And Charteris was someone who basically ran the gambit of every sort of job you can uh, think of. He was he was uh, he was a sailor, a freighter man. He was a barman in the county pub. He was a gold prospector at one point. He dived for pearls, tin mined on a rubber plantation. He toured with a carnival at one point, part of the uh, you know British carnival circuit and uh also drove the bus so not much going on no he was just he was (laughs) he was kind of a renaissance man of just the odd jobs in life Mm -hmm. um and while he continued to work on more books and stuff like that but eventually his third book uh was called meet the tiger which was the introduction to the character of simon templar also known as the saint uh so uh, Charteris, um, at this time, uh, also this was a, at this point he also has changed his name to Charteris, his original last name was Yin, um, but he felt that having a more British last name oh, yeah. would, would help him. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, and it was like, it's one of those things where he always, it was one of those things where he definitely at some points, you know, sort of downplayed his Chinese oh, yeah. heritage to and, and I'm easier not, and, get get the publication. And I, I'm not saying that as like, of course, I'm just saying that realistically of the era, it, yeah. of the era does not surprise me. Because this is also, me. we're going yeah. back now. We, we went to the 60s the more, but this is the 1920s. I mean, the fact that, I mean, that once you told me his origins of his, his, his family heritage, um, which is very unique. I mean, I don't know like the, the, the specifics of the, of, of the time so i can't really get into it that way but yeah that would be a a, a unique pairing um that definitely that you know going forward you know going forward especially if you're white passing uh in that time you're definitely not leaning Mm -hmm. into your uh asian uh side of your of your of your um ethnicity so um he writes, uh, he publishes Meet the Tiger in 1928, which is the introduction of the Simon Templar character. Though Charteris himself uh, kind of has downplayed that book. It's, it's more, he views it as a rough draft of Simon, and he views the real first saint book, Enter the Saint, in 1930. Mm. So the concept of the saint character, uh, the character of Simon Templar, is that Charteris was interested in writing about a Robin Hood-type figure. Mm. Basically, a, a modern equivalent of rob the, rob the rich to give to the poor. In the sense that Simon was a kind of master thief who whose whole purpose in life was to not wreak vengeance, but essentially, like, you know, punish the what he called the ungodly. Those, of the, those he viewed had a lesser moral code than he did. So right. it would be stuff like... Oh, like this, you know, this factory owner is abusing the workers' rights, so he would. Right, he's a Robin Hood type yeah. character, or yeah. you know, and it's like kind of the, it's almost like kind of a, a really early day like vigilante, where it's like, oh, like this girl's father got murdered, so he's going to kind of mess with yeah. the murderers and get them caught. No, very noble crimes, right. yeah. <laughs> um, and so the the um, so that's basically kind of the base concept of the character. And it would be something that's that's interesting too, because the character, in terms of novelizations, lasts for a very, very long time. Uh, basically, you know, Charteris would do an occasional other novel here and here, but after the real success of like Meet the Tiger and Enter the Saint, he was essentially like, 
pumping out Simon Templar books. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and, and a lot of it came from uh, his wide variety of jobs in the sense that he was kind of a world traveler of some sense. You know, he had seen things from all different sorts of angles. So Simon Templar became a character that he could place anywhere. You know, he could place him at a British pub. He could place him in New York or Los Angeles or Canada or India. Like, he could place him sort of anywhere, anywhere that there is, like, you know, bad people doing bad things and any sort of person. It could be, again, the factory owner or murderer or pub owner, whatever it may be. Whoever that, like, was doing something bad, Simon was going to be, like, a person that could help. Mm. Um the the character definitely evolved over time as well because on the early on days of the character, like those 30s books especially, uh, Simon was a little bit more of kind of a, not a loose cannon character, but he definitely was a little bit more morally gray in some senses. Um, you know, he was a little bit more using more illegal tactics and using more thievery and, and that sort of thing to really get his point across. Um you know, he was noted as having his calling card, which was the stick figure, um, which became kind of the the cover of the books, very the, very associated with the saint. Um, and you know, he would always, even no matter who he was robbing from, he would always kind of give himself a little bit of a you know the payment. Um, but we transition once we get to the war era, um, the forties. The Simon Templar character definitely becomes a little bit more of you know. He's kind of doing his secret missions in Germany. This is where he starts getting more into like being hired by official bodies of people. Like he's hired by the Americans to, you know, check out this art thing, or he's hired by, you know, the the British to kind of fight the communists. Like there's a little bit more of like he kind of becomes almost a hero for hire mm. in in that sense too, while still having the more Robin Hoody adventures. Um so when I say like Charteris kind of kept pumping out books, he essentially wrote so many books between the characters' visual appearance in 1928 and all the way to 1963. He just kept writing all these different Saint novels, uh, which were very popular and very easy reads. Um, very much like you know, get the paperback and just kind of read it on the you sub with the train or subway or or you know, lounging around. It's very much like kind of this, you know. Uh, it was a very popular character, so much so that there was some initial uh, early on uh, adaptations of the character for radio. Vincent Price uh, played uh, Simon Templar for some radio dramas. <laughs> um, RKO uh, produced a series of um, S- uh, Simon Templar Saint movies in the 1940s, uh, including George Sanders playing the role. A couple other people kind of went in and out of the role as well. Uh, though uh, Charteris actually wrote the radio dramas, uh, you know, he worked directly with Vincent Price and the radio company because he was also writing Sherlock Holmes for them at the time. Uh, but he would um, actually sue RKO for the uh, the series of movies that they produced in the 40s because they did all original material, which he felt, one, didn't represent the same character, and two, was a means of basically not giving him his royalties because this was like this was right around kind of the start of the copyright stuff in America. Like, you know, obviously like there's a whole thing about like, you know, extending copyright where like stuff like Mickey mouse and stuff, which was also 1928, like should be in public domain. Mm. But it's like one of those things where it's like, yes, like the character kind of is and isn't in public domain in a sense where it's like, you know, like you still need kind of the rights to do it. But like, if you're doing original stuff, you don't need it. It was like kind of a weird thing. So he sued, uh, and kind of resisted more film stuff. There was kind of another kind of couple TV movies and stuff until the 1960s. 
1962, uh, Charteris was considering retirement um, from actually writing the Saint the, the Saint books. But what he would end up doing is that one, he was like, okay, now I can finally kind of leverage this and have more input into where my character is being adapted to. Uh, and the other thing he did was he basically started hiring ghostwriters to continue the Saint series, um, where his name would be uh, the Leslie Charteris would be the the person on the book on the cover. But then once you flip to the inside, it would tell you who the actual author is. So it's because <laughs> it's still like his name was attached to everything. That's, that's fun. Um, so the Saint as a character and the Saint as Leslie uh, Charteris written. Technically speaking, Charteris would still outline and, and edit, so it was still kind of his. He was all of his approval, right? Uh, basically, the series ran in book form from nineteen thirty, uh, sorry, nineteen twenty eight, all the way till Charteris's death in nineteen eighty three. Um, so it's a very, very long running book series and has ungodly amounts of, of of books over time, especially once other writers starting to get into them. But we go into the nineteen sixties now, and uh, TV uh, producer Luke Grade. Um, who I know because he also helped produce The Muppet Show about a decade later, uh, has the rights to the Saint series and is interested in producing it for British television, specifically for the BBC. Um, and he has his eye on one Roger Moore as the cast, uh, even before knowing that Moore was trying to grab the rights himself. So essentially really was like a match made in heaven in that Moore saw this as this is my opportunity. This is kind of my make it or break it opportunity. It's like, this is the thing that I feel like I can play best. This is my chance to actually become like a, if I'm going to be a TV star, I'm going to be a legitimate TV star. I'm going to be someone who does a series for more than one season. And I'm going to be, you know, a household name in that sense. And the producers, um, and, uh, the directors of the show all liked more and liked more for the Saint Charteris loved more for the role of the saint. Uh, so it was, um, uh, it was just, everybody was happy with the arrangement. Um, a couple things were set on early on in the series. Um, more begins every episode by, you know, addressing the audience and having the halo at the end. And then it would go into the stick figure. Uh, again, the, the very famous element of the saint, uh, basically everything out of the first four seasons, were based on Charteris material, whether it be the his original material from 1928 to 1963, or his kind of you know ghost written material for afterwards. Um, it was pretty much only updated to be more modern. Um, so it basically be a contemporary thing. So if it was like something that took place in the 30s, they would just edit the script to be edit the novel into the script to be a 1960s production. Um, a couple of things to note, because it's really not going to be much casting or anything like that. Obviously, there's a couple of recurring characters. There's the police, um, the British police chief character, who kind of has a couple of run-ins with, with more uh, more Saint. We actually see him in one of the episodes uh, we watched for this show. Um, notably absent is the uh, girlfriend character of the Saint, which appeared in many of the original books. Mm. Um from the his original appearances up until World War II, the World War II era, he had sort of a regular girlfriend character that he would always be with. But Leslie kind of got into like, well, it's, you know, more fun if he has like a different girl type of thing, like kind of that trope. So 
the the books or the 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 show very much focuses on on that's what Charters wants. He wants kind of like if he's gonna have a girl, maybe not every episode, but it'll be like a different girl every time. Um, one thing to note is Moore was very very happy to play the saint, very happy to play Simon Templar so much so that in the season five, when um, the saint transitions to color. Moore becomes a producer on the series as well, uh, and also directs a couple episodes, including one of the ones, the one we watched today in the color season was a Roger Moore directed episode. Um, so he he basically kind of had all his hands on deck, and he had a very uh, good relationship with the team that produced The Saint um, for television, and that he had a lot of input into his performance and his character even before he started directing. Cool. All right. Um, so, uh, I think we'll talk about a little more of the success of the show after we talk about the episodes. Um, and I want to say, uh, I, I was trying to look for my notes here that the, um, the 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 main producer of the show, Lou Grade, was kind of the, the head of the of BBC and the, the development at the time. Um, but Robert S. Baker uh, was the main producer on the show, directed a couple episodes, and then. When it went to color, he and Moore went in together to basically kind of co-own the rights to the show and continue the series for television. Cool. Uh, all right, should we hop into the into the episodes? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the the episodes and uh, what what we think of Roger Moore uh, in general. All right, let's get to it. for English theater bars. We've had two acts of this play. Complete suffering, both on stage and off. I don't know what your tastes are in theater. Maybe you like the... Uh, the sweat and the grunt school of acting. Me, I, I come to the theater for fun, for laughs, for excitement. Tonight, brother... Simon! the producer's wife. What shall I say? Excuse me. Oh, darling. Madge. Tell me honestly, what do you think of it? Well, I can honestly say, Madge, I have never seen anything like it in my life. Or isn't it thrilling? Now, you stay right here. I want you to meet John. He's very clever. He used to be an actor once, you know. Yes. Yes, I know. Come, darling. I want you to meet the most fantastic man. I've told you about him. John, this is Simon Templer. All right, and we're back. All right, so we are here, and this is going to be a little bit different for us. Uh, it's our first time talking about television uh, specifically. Like we've, we've done movies that have been adapted from TV to, to film, um, and we've talked about TV series in that sense, but this is the first time we're, we're doing a, a TV series, so this is going to be a big kind of test and maybe a little bit different in how we talk about it. Um, so yeah, we, not really. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll jump around as we always do. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, you know, it's it's funny because so I I didn't know really anything about the show um, going into it, mm-hmm. um, other than it was Rod, it was it starred Roger Moore, my favorite Bond. Yeah. Um, so that and was exciting. I was exciting say, to see. I would say too, just uh, from a perspective, of that is that the first season is you know 1962 so that is also the first year of bond that's you know the first year of doctor no um 
and, you know, runs all the way until essentially Connery leaves the series. So this is kind of, and really it's like, you know, that first season, those first two seasons of The Saint, uh, you know, are, are pretty much almost just under 10 years from, from, or just around 10 years from when Moore will officially step into the role in 1973. Uh, so the two episodes that we have are, um, the first one is... Uh, the first one is from season two. It's uh, this, The Saint uh, sees it through. Mm-hmm. And then the second episode from season five is Escape Route. Mm-hmm. And that was time-wise. That was like what, uh, two, two years later? Yeah, or? so basically yeah. Um, uh, the first episode would have aired in the 1963-1964 yeah. season. And then the second episode would have aired in the 1965-1966 Got it. Okay. season. Cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, it was interesting. Uh, it was, it was, it's always fun to go back and watch like these things, especially um, with to see – you know, the actor and to yeah. see like, you know, it, it, it's always fun because right now we've had it like, for instance, like it's fun to go back and watch Darby O'Gill, not just to see like, Oh, like what do you see of an early Connery in like a completely different context that you eventually get in previous films? Yeah. Um, you know, what translates from, uh, you know, the bond that we, that from the Brosnan bond, uh, to like the other works and, and things like that, so it, it, it's always interesting. Um, my my favorite out of all of these may be actually delving into the life and career of Dalton, um, who you had on the Rocketeer the other day, and it, it's just funny. Like the like the world's a stage is a pretty big acting cliche, but I don't think it uh, applies to anybody more than Timothy Dalton. It, yeah. It's just like the type of roles that he's in and just like what in the movie, like the, the, the productions that he's a part of and how he goes about them. He must just think that like, you know, like his death will be, he'll bow at his death is like, yeah. the, is the way it seems. So it, it's always interesting to go back and, and, and look at, um, that so, um, I'll probably start with talking about the saint just from Roger Moore himself. Yeah. I'll start from there. Um, and really, all I could say, and I and I thought about this halfway through the first episode, was that if there was ever a show that just offered up an actor on a silver platter for the role of Bond, it's this show. Yeah. And, you know, and it's funny because there's a lot of aspects about it that I I don't think are quite – it's not like, oh, he's playing James Bond here, so, like, we'll just make him James Bond. But, like, it it was almost like from everything we've learned about the casting process of a James Bond, it's like, you know, he's not like – he's not a huge star. Um, He has enough of, like, that cool, handsome – uh, smooth quality to him, but is still, I don't want to say a blank slate, but still is not quite doing like the Bond stuff. So like if we get him to play Bond, we would still inject that into him. So it would still feel like we're doing something unique with like with the actor. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, it's in, in some ways there is with the Bond actors, I find at times like there's um, especially here with more is that I don't want to say blank slate again, but there's just kind of like this under like this undefined just piece of like i i find like i can only imagine that because it's eon productions at the time right the eon productions are just looking at an actor and just seeing a block of just fine marble and then they're gonna get that and then they're gonna sculpt a bond out of it And, Mm -hmm. and and basically that's what the saint is the saint is just offering up a 
just a block of marble that is Roger Moore. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I definitely, especially in that first episode, um, I uh, I definitely found like, okay, you can definitely see where this evolves into him being Bond. Sure. Like, there's definitely differences in the way that Simon Templar is is portrayed, and and um, and, and and you know the character is definitely different. But you can definitely see where it's like there's so many is the little elements of more um, that like will kind of pop oh, up it, into it, in his first like appearance like on screen like you know he's talking right to the camera right. which I'm assuming based off of the two episodes that the rest of the series is that's like a running thing is every episode opens with some sort of like to either to the camera or to the audience voiceover about like you know what 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 he's up to yeah so the all the black and white so the first four seasons he's all directing directly to the audience and then when more uh takes over some of the producing stuff in in the color seasons they decide to transition it into a voiceover to give a little bit more uh you know be a little bit more uh, free with what to do mm-hmm. with it but basically yeah every episode it essentially would be every episode would begin with him talking directly to the camera or the voiceover he would encounter someone else or something would happen where his name is said mm. uh, and then the halo would appear over his head. And right. That was always the opening sequence. Right. Yeah, that that's another little visual flair is like, you know, the halo is o- over his head and then it like transitions into the opening like animation and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, right, right from the get-go, like it's just like, oh, who's this handsome, smooth dude? Like, yeah. you know, like the coolest guy and and then also um just just seems so gentlemanly like mm-hmm. it's just like there's no other word to describe him other than like that just looks like a gentleman yeah. like like when you when you see him uh, right away and what's fascinating about watching the two episodes back to back um which you did a pretty good job of for several reasons uh, of picking these two episodes and one of the reasons is is that there's his bond ultimately i feel ends up being somewhere of a midpoint between where he is in the first episode of how he portrays uh uh Templar that episode and then like um uh him in the in his ep- the episode he directed uh in 65. Yeah. Like there there there's a somewhere in that sweet spot that's a little bit where his bond ends up because mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating because he's very stoic gentleman in the in the first episode that right. we watched, yeah, there's a little more of like a hard boiled detective type yes. thing going on there. Now and then, by the time we get to, um, you know, uh, his directed episode um, in season, season five, five yeah. uh, the way he's playing the character is super super smooth Robin Hood type character, like you know, always like very still very gentlemanly and is always like morally pointed in the right direction. But you know, is always given like the men of Scotland Yard, like a he's got like you know he's got like a uh, like a slew like a, a very uh, like what do you call it? like a like a Bugs Bunny quality to him, like he like he's very much like you know putting them in traps like ha ah, like it's like you'll never catch me this time, and then he's always like trading wits and you know uh, uh, with uh, whoever he's talking to a little bit. So there is definitely more of a, an animated quality in there, and and his bond I think ends up being somewhere in between those. Uh, two portrayals, which I find um, pretty fascinating as well. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, it was it was definitely uh, definitely had a couple options. Basically, what I did to choose the episodes was I essentially kind of mused around a couple of the best episodes of the Saint lists or like kind of rankings on like IMDb and stuff like that, and 
essentially just kind of picking things that I seem seemed interesting uh, and seemed to be would be just fun to watch. Um, what I felt about this is yes, yeah, so I felt very much like it was just fun kind of seeing more again because really I think what's interesting with more is from a filmic perspective because one of the reasons like we were gonna do this podcast and one of the, when, when we kind of figured out that like I wanted to do these like kind of episodes about the Bond actors, the more thing was always very interesting because you basically, his film career is really like, we'll talk about it in the aftermath of the week. He basically becomes Bond and then that's him in film. And yes, he has like stuff like we could have watched like Cannonball Run where he plays a parody of himself. Like most of the stuff he does after Bond is like, he, he does do a couple of like other war movies or like there's like Seawolf and stuff like that. But a lot of it's like stuff making fun of himself or like, you know, he has a cameo in like, the one of the Pink Panther movies where he's playing a disguise in Spectre Clouseau, like the one after Peter Sellers dies and stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to kind of pinpoint that. Whereas I feel like like the Saint is something that he is so known for, even outside of our circles, that it's still something that he so attaches himself to, or it's still so attached to himself. And so I thought it would be very very interesting to kind of see that. And one of the things I felt about revisiting more in a different context was just how comfortable it is to just watch more do what he do. Right. It's he's so. It's just so he's so easy to watch, like even whether he's kind of being the more stoic detective type in that first episode or where he has that kind of sillier quality in the, the color episode in the escape route. I just feel like there's something just you could just put on the show and you can see more. And, you know, especially like when it's first coming on, and you, he's talking to the camera. Or he has that voiceover, just a comfortability. It's like, I just enjoy seeing this guy. Well, there, there there's a level of ease that more naturally brings to bond and that he brings into this character too. And some of that is, you know, that it's funny that you say like he's played roles where he makes fun of himself because this is a, you can tell that in none of these roles that we see him in, that he takes himself like too seriously Mm -hmm. in a way that a lot of bond actors we don't see. I think that um, Brosnan kind of gets there a little bit. Connery maybe in like something like um, Never Say Never Again. Finally, I think like lightens up a, a, a little bit, but like, and it, it's through no fault of any of the other actors. I mean, you know, I think Dalton plays a, a pretty serious Bond. Like they all have like the smooth, you know, the smooth criminal quality to them. But like, you know, but uh, you know, some actors kind of lean into like the whole like, oh, like you know, it's like, like a bit of an aloofness to them mm-hmm. a, as well. Um, and there's a bit of that with more in this one that just the way that his characters play there's definitely a sincerity to them when like you know there is drama but you know you never feel like he's kind of like trying to sell himself as like i can really like get into these acting chops right now like yeah. you know some of that comes naturally but there's just elements of especially in the first one which you know you don't get to see it so much in the first episode because you're right it's more of the hard-boiled detective but um you know you get to see it like when, when he's doing stuff like he's in like the sailor's disguise and, and a little bit like you can tell that there is a little bit of play to him that you know that that he likes and then and then eventually when you get to the second episode where he's really just having a ball with Mm -hmm. the with the character um so that that that's an element about more that that i always liked and and probably why if you look towards like it's one of the things where it's a shame that like you know that craig isn't able to do it because craig is like the exact opposite craig is very much like Always just like I, I always joke about in like that in the tra- in one of the trailers for the upcoming um, um, 
never never die what's 25 whatever it's called no time uh, to no die. time to die sorry uh but um i like that title though never die 25 <laughs> um but yeah it's just like when you see the trailer for that like he's always like like you know he, he she's you know they're in the car and she's like I, I told you all my secrets he's like maybe you have one more seat like just he's just looks so, in- so angry and so intense all the time yeah and um and there's just something really just cool and calm about the way that Moore plays even the most sincere and drama filled stuff and I think it's also because to be fair and it's the way that even this character is written in the saint like you know they always put him as like you know, for this Robin Hood, you know, um, type character who will maybe, you know, steal a thing here or there, but it's all for the, for the greater good, even though, you know, there's probably a little edge to him that he likes stealing something, yeah. which you could definitely tell in the second episode. But, you know, he's always, they always keep him as like, you know, he's he's looking after somebody. Like, yeah. you know, he, he's he's a good dude. Like, yeah. Indeed, and, and and basically what I'm saying is like that just comes very. He's able to ease naturally into that. Yeah, no, I think he 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 definitely he, he's definitely someone who you can just tell when he's like working with other actors and stuff. There's just he just eases. It. You're right. He very eases, eases into that quality and that chemistry with an, with another actor very well. And there. I find the best Bond actors are able to do that too. Like, and that, that's one of the reasons I do like Brosnan. Uh, quite a bit is especially in the earlier films is like just the way in which he bounces off of um other actors mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just it's just really good um in terms of the show itself like i have to be honest, the show is kind of like is fine um and it's just specifically just like like you know, there there's like the mission, and there's a caper quality to it, and I mean, like you know, it's it's fine. It's a very 1960s television, and especially like it's one of those things where I definitely, I guess my general thing was like I enjoyed watching them, and if I'm be honest, it's like there's maybe like just from when I was researching and have some of the other episodes that like I kind of didn't choose. There's definitely like maybe like a couple others that I wouldn't mind just checking out just to see kind of what mm. the what it's like and again just to see more it's not a series i'm going to binge i'm like not going to go on shout factory and just watch every episode of the saint but i definitely think like if i get the like i'm definitely interested in seeing more of the highlights of the show but it's very much like a show of its time very much just sort of procedural here's your thief or villain of the week and and you know no matter what like simon's gonna get out of there and you know it's just kind of very much of its time because it's only very you know obviously simon isn't technically a spy character, but it very much shares. It's like an early build of what would be shared with some of the later stuff we would see in the sixties as the spy craze got bigger. It definitely shares sort of an element with just sort of the style of, st- of shows like, you know, mission impossible and, and um, man from uncle and stuff like that, where it's like, well, here is sort of the caper, the spy thing, the mission of the week. You're going to meet like your guest stars you're going to meet like maybe the the one the important ally character there's going to be some drama some fights and then you know it'll end you know fine for the hero character yeah it, it's um yeah i have to be honest it, it was something where there's a, there's actually a macro thing about these two episodes that it was way more fascinating to me so we'll get to that but in kind of like the details i mean 
the plot i have to be honest like just the the general plot and what the shows were like it, it, nothing like really really grabbed me uh, yeah. about I them know. i mean i i enjoyed them for for what they were um i i do feel like if you are going to watch this show one of the things that i would actually kind of objectively say about a show like this is that I think it would really help you as an audience member to really understand what the premise of the show is. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I think, for some reason, I just feel like the one thing that was missing about this show, um, then if you watched, like, let's say other, like, old, old, like, like A Man From Uncle, or, like, honestly, even, like, Get Smart, something something like that. You kind of go into that show, and those shows do a pretty good job of, like, getting you up to speed on, like, what the status quo of the show is and, like, what what you're going to be watching. And, I mean, even when you look at any old, like, TV show of the time, whether it be through, like, the some of the opening, like, you know, the, the cold opens or even, like, the actual, like, opening, like, sequence, like, the mm-hmm. theme sequence, like, it, it, there's almost, like, an art to how they sold, like, they almost pitched you the show, Right, right away, yeah, like exactly, like yeah. like think of like one of the like one of the greatest examples of it is like Adam's Family, like it's Adam's just like, Family, or like even like the like Bonanza, like you know right. like the opening sequences of those shows, Batman, like one hundred percent. Well, Batman is also like that. Well, I mean, Batman, like, like look right? at I mean, honestly, like all the shows that like Rick Dalton was on were like real shows. Yes. So it's like if you look at like, FBI, it's like okay, well we know it's like they they yeah. have like the cold open. It's like here's like the mission. And then they have like they, they like like Jimmy and like in the movie it's like in the show they have like it's the FBI here's the case right and then we're off to the races. I would say that that was one of the things that actually was kind of struggling about picking an episode because uh, I didn't mention this in, before, but the way that it was the way that the first season was done was essentially they did basically that forty episode chunk of like they basically filmed season one and two all in a row and then just kind of put episodes out. So there's not. You know, I was one of the things I was thinking was like, well, we should watch the first episode. But as I got into that first episode, I was like, well, this doesn't seem like it really introduces a character any better than any other episode does. Mm, Interesting. Um, You know, because it has a little bit more like that first episode because I've watched a little bit of it for research. And it was very much like, yeah, it kind of has a little bit more of like that one is like more of the saint rides in the town and kind of gets wrapped up in this you know, attempted murder case uh, that he just kind of happens upon. And it's kind of that whole, again, it's whole thing where it happens upon that one was like the episodes we watched were both kind of like in one sense, they were similar that they were kind of like, well, he's kind of hired by, you know, in the first, in the black and white episode, the Saint sees it through. He's hired by like the Americans. Uh, and then he, in the escape route, he's working with the, the, the police that are always trying to catch him. So there was kind of a similar sense where that one is a little bit more like he rides in the town, kind of happens across this thing seems suspicious of a guy and kind of messes with him. Well, it's interesting if you look up like the, I was looking, because I did find myself, well, let me get to the criticism first. The the, the criticism I, I, I do have, which is fascinating to me because, again, this is one of the many surprises of doing these is you never know like these little gems you're going to like have to like analyze. And one of the things is like, you know, criticizing like how a 60s show uh, introduces itself. Yeah. And I did find myself like when this show started, like, having no context for what it was i like was a little bit like missing that well wait a minute who who is he like is he like a spy is he like does he work for this guy or like you know i i i I found that was a missing piece that maybe hindered what how i engaged with with the rest of of the episode like is he like 
like is he a gentleman detective like for hire like i, I right, didn't yeah i didn't quite like i i think through context i i finally got it mm-hmm. but it, it was one of those things where you know i like i never would think that i would find myself missing a classic like 60s like opening like explain to me the show mm-hmm. first but um and it's funny like i don't know it's like it's a style of making television that um i don't think but like do they really do they really do that now i'm trying to think i mean well i think the part of the problem it's I also think, not serialized it's, it's either. very different because yeah. now there is more of a thing where it's like, yeah, like maybe, you know, it's like one of the things where it's like, if you're looking at like an hour long show like this, most of them are going to be serialized or simplistic to the point where it's like, okay, NCIS, they're naval investigators, right. CSI, they're, you know, they're crime scene, you know, it's like, this is the crime scene of this. Okay. But, but, but even if you look at other shows like today, like even if you look at, let's step outside of the genre, if you look at something like The Office or like, uh, like it, it's like, Here's all. Not only here are all your characters, but the show is called The Office, and we're showing you all these guys work in an office. Yeah. So this show must be about a bunch of people that work in an office. Right. A lot of. So yeah. it's like the same thing with Parks and Rec. It's like, oh, it's like it looks like a like yeah. a slideshow for uh for um a Parks Department, and here are all the characters. I like, also feel like that's uh, to me it's a little bit easier on a sitcom level than it is. Sure. I feel like because on a sitcom level, you there's a very usually a very simplistic like we can really like show you the characters or even like. Like something like Big Bang Theory, where it's like if you watch like a second of that show, you immediately know right. what's going on in it. Um, but but the, it definitely was interesting because it was. I think there was an element of it where because the character had such a lengthy piece of source material, like you know, an author that was just writing every year or multiple books a year, just like so much going on that I feel like there was a comfortability of like, okay, well, we're just gonna put the character on the screen. Uh, and, you know, just kind of push him in. And especially also because it's a character, and I think this is what's really interesting about Simon, is he is a character that can literally be placed anywhere. And if when I was going through kind of other episodes of the show, there was like, there's one episode where he's on an Australian cattle ranch. And of course, it's more. There is an episode where he goes and encounters voodoo like mm. <laughs> like well you know, the, there's the, there's like you know and there's ones that are more based on the thievery ones more based on you know fighting you know the russian like there's so like this, there's so... this may this may kind of go to the point because even when i looked when i looked up the show on imdb just to get like a, what a quick like synopsis of the show was yeah. The way that they describe it was like he's a traveling man who gets into adventures, and that, that was basically it. So I'm like, wait, so what? Is, so there was a little bit up until like I maybe I was just struggling to kind of even grasp what was right unique about this show, other than he's like solving this mystery. And up until in that first episode, um, that he was donning the disguise of the sailor, that I, that was kind of like the most interesting thing that kind of informed what this who this guy was and what this show is and and, mm-hmm. and things like that um frankly the second episode that we watch i think is a better like little sales pitch on like what this show and what the who this character is yeah. I, I think where you know he's like going on in like he uh stealing stuff he's got like a bit of a um, compli- complicated history with the law, but like people still will hire him, and he's a good dude. So it's like I will give the the second episode a little bit more credit uh, mm-hmm. for for doing that. Um, 
But the macro thing I wanted to talk about that was like even more interesting for me was just a few years apart between these two episodes. It was it, it was so fascinating to see like almost the entire tone of the, the the tone of the show was just completely different yeah like like and almost to the point where it almost seemed like two different shows or like this season five was like the reboot of like the season one through two and what i mean by that is like so the first episode we watch is black and white um very much like early 60s uh um detective melodrama is how i would describe it like and not only in tone, but even just in the technical aspects of it, it's very much filmed uh, an episode of its time. Uh, you know, very um, some smooth movements, but very static camera, kind of like very limited coverage on on things going on. Um, you know, you can feel all the melodrama, but dynamically, the the actors aren't doing like too much. And then, um, you know, not not even a lot of score happening a lot of the time, and and, and things like that. Then when you get to the our second episode, which again was only like maybe two years later, it's like a hypnin, happenin, groovy, fun spy time, and it was I was oh, like five minutes into the second one, I was having like whiplash by, and I understand like you know shows evolve over time, but I I've never seen it like seem like they almost felt like from two different eras, mm-hmm. which was fascinating just from a history of the show level, but also just shows you how um, just, I don't know how other way to put it, but how just the filmmaking changed just within a couple years. Yes, I definitely think so. Um, Cause it's, the, it's interesting too, because the saint was one of the few shows at that time uh, that um, filmed everything on film. Uh, you know, most of the other shows were doing videotape. It was really only, the saint and like the Disney television stuff that was doing film stuff. Um, so there's that element of it, but I also think you're very much right. And that's always something that's been an interesting thing without throughout the whole podcast is just seeing the evolution of the visualness of film. Um, with both of our franchises, I think that there's definitely like elements that evolve over time, but I definitely think with television, we were getting into a point on TV at that time where, yes, TV exploded in popularity in the 50s. And I feel like the 60s is where the medium really starts to get refined um, for its own kind of, you know, purposes uh, and, and kind of its strengths. And I, I, I definitely agree. It's just that there's there's a very much a little bit more of a somewhat cinematic look to that second episode in some senses. Like, it's still very much TV, like, not as obviously big as, like, a film would be, but there's definitely like you're right, more camera movement, a little bit more score. Just, oh, the whole visual language of the of the, the show, show just is, changes. Yeah, it, it's and to kind of give you an example of how I feel, it it, it was as if if you jumped from um, Gojira 1954 to Biolanti. Yeah, like that's how kind of drastic the presentation changed. So it was just very fascinating just from on a television front. Um and again it's a little bit different because, you know, it's just um, you know, it's yeah, I was going to about to say modern. It's not modern, but you know, it's a little bit more like, you know, it's TV and, you know, a little bit fast uh, evolving and has like, you know, your um because it was a British television show, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, you know, British um, you know, British television making. So it it was just fascinating to see that within the course of 
like less than a handful of years that within just the seasons of the show it like completely changed and it's actually one of the reasons uh you know the one of the other decisions that i made going into it is i definitely wanted to do one film uh one black and white episode and one color episode because i felt like they're because the saint is noted especially among its fans as having those kind of two distinct eras like it is something that's like yes it's like the same show and the same series but you know there's like that original four seasons and then because also again like stuff like the seasons five and six do a little bit more of like original stuff with all the other books that are coming out at the time so i definitely wanted to kind of see that and also how more you know evolved because as a show, it's like when you're watching a show, it is always fascinating to see when you see something early versus something later in the show. Like, I get that, you know, I've been watching Seinfeld recently, and even just the visual language of that show, like, it's not drastic or anything, but you can definitely tell, like, just like a color level where it's like the first, like, three seasons are very brown, mm. just the way that even Jerry's apartment looks. And then once you get to, like, season six and seven, there's, like, a lot more, it's like a lot cleaner, a lot bluer. And just a lot more kind of almost professional looking. And I feel like there's a similar sense here where it's just like just how it evolves and just the, the different, um, you know, techniques and mediums and, 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 you know, going from black and white to color immediately just shifts everything that what you're doing. And I think everything kind of snowballs from there. So it's, it's almost like uh, going back and listening to those early uh, voice recordings for um, in like the early seasons of the Simpsons. Yes. Like it's, it's a little tough. It's, it's a little tough. Like, like not that it's bad, but it's just like when you go like this, it's uh, yeah. Cause it's not quite the voice even, that you've memorized. Even like head. that first season Simpsons, like the animation is just so, it's just so mu- a little bit more rougher. Right. Then mm-hmm. once it even, once you even get to like seasons three and four yeah. and like the, the show like it's like when you compare the first treehouse treehouse of horror to like treehouse five mm-hmm. which is I, treehouse five is like the one with like the the shinning and all that sort of stuff it's like it's just like almost night and day in some senses and it was very interesting to see uh in this sense too because i think you also see again like you said you see even sort of differences in the evolution of the character Simon is more portrays him yeah i mean it's it's definitely and especially i think this is um also, uh, the fact that Roger Moore directed the episode contributes to this as well. It's just a very much like, all right, you're five seasons in, and this guy just wants to like cut loose a little bit from the character. He wants to Ragnarok it a bit, yeah. and uh, you can you can tell that you know he's not off the rails, but it's definitely a more cool, fun character than the straight laced detective of the earlier seasons. Right, because it's like is that first episode is like just basic plot stuff. Even just the difference in this is that in that first episode, Moore is hired by the Americans who think that they've kind of uncovered this 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 European art smuggling ring that they're kind of smuggling art into America to sell it at like a you know super high price. So they hire uh, Simon to kind of investigate you know this kind of bar and sort of figure out you know he had a contact there comes across like an old girlfriend who's kind of involved with this sort of stuff and then kind of has to figure out like if they have this like you know specific art piece and like where they're finding it and all that sort of stuff whereas the color episode we watch is that it begins with with more actually being the thief and it's like he has this whole monologue of like oh they always they always hide it behind the remois and like and then he puts he lifts the picture and he's like well it's not there but then he's like stealing these Wait, du- i think the line was like can't get it right every time right, and, and, he, and that was fun uh yeah that was a very fun opening narration i really like that opening sequence but he basically like gets caught stealing these diamonds you know goes on an escape route but eventually gets arrested and sentenced to prison for 10 years 
and it's eventually revealed that he's actually working with the police to kind of un- uncover this uh, gang that that specifically breaks people out of prison. Mm. And and there's kind is of that what, that that was. I was a little confused by that point of the plot. So like, is that that's like a reveal that like this was actually yes. all orchestrated yes, for him? Yeah. Okay, got yeah. it, got it. Okay. Yeah, it was a reveal, and like, and again, like it's one of those things where he's working with the police, but in that episode again, he's like with the Robin Hood nature. It's like, well, I'm not doing it for you i'm not like still on your side i guess or like whatever it's like the girl that he like encounters the episode like her father might have been killed by these people so Mm. he's trying to like clear clear that up also big twist in the second episode is that donald sutherland was young at one point so and you can find you can find out what he looked like in, in in this one it reminded me of the days when I found out what a young when I watched the godfather for the first time and then you see a young al pacino for the first time and then you're like what That existed. Yeah. So, uh, but, but even but, you can even see like within those two episodes, like that first one, um, which well, again is more specifically based on the Simon books. Like, there's definitely a more, there is a little more of the the serious, and like again, there's like the big drama with him and, and his ex girlfriend, which you know, kind of, you know, and it's like very like you're not mentally ill, and it's like that whole kind of weird thing. Well, well, that was maybe my favorite part of the second episode, where was the big reveal of what the character with the with the you know the ex-girlfriend with the female characters her big dark secret was was that she had a therapist oh yeah in that first episode <laughs> she was, was like, like yeah. he's my psychiatrist it's like what <laughs> it was just funny it was very 1960 while, while it is unfortunate that you know that is more reflective of the fact of getting mental help at the time i still can't help but laugh that when you watch it it's yeah. just funny like it's, it's a big reveal but it's funny if you compare the two ep- the episodes, they do cover similar ground but in very different ways. So like let's take it like step by step. Like if you have you have the first episode like in your introducing the character and now like you know the fir- in the first episode black and white, very dapper in a coat, you know, he's yeah. at an airport, so maybe you're kind of subliminally being like, oh, this guy's like moving like around everywhere and you know, he's always standing in front of a green screen or something like that like like that. That was very good green screen work. It wasn't very good green screen work. Um, but, you know, you're kind of subliminally giving that message. Um, and then, you know, he's talking to the camera, very Twilight Zone-ish, and, you know, is very prim and proper. First, that the our second episode, like, kind of insinuate some of the same, or actively show some of the information that the first episode was insinuating. He's, like, on his own little mission. He's thieving, and, you know, you're kind of getting the same type of information in a different way. Um, but some other little parallels I found is just like, you know, these little, how they, how they, uh, introduce certain aspects of the character. So in the first episode, they straight up, Hey, like we need your help for this mission. In the second episode, it's more of a, um, reveal that, you know, that, you know, he's being, uh, um, contacted by like some sort of authority figure to, you know, solve this. Um, he's a ladies man to a certain respectable degree, yeah. whereas like, but in a fun way too. So like one of my favorite bits in the first one was when, you know, they pull out the picture of like the, of, of the girl. And then he's like, he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, it's like, he was like, we weren't sure if you were like, are you familiar with her or something? And then Simon like looks up and just kind of like gives him like, like a little look. And he's like, yeah, that's what we thought. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then, um, but you know, it not, it, it was funny that they played it tastefully. Like, you know, he wasn't like being like a, oh yeah. Like, it's just kind of like, he's not, like, come on. <laughs> he's not bond in that sense. Like he will, he will, he has like a lot of lady friends, yeah. but he's also not like, especially also, I mean, 
it's like Simon wasn't really that character either, but also to be fair, it's also 1960s television where that censorship was a little bit more like heavy handed. Yeah, but I thought that was funny because but it's just it, like they, it they was, definitely present him tastefully in terms of his role. It was very a gentlemanly way of saying like, yeah, of yeah, course. And yeah. then and then so then you go into the second episode and they portray he's kind of like a ladies man by kind of like coming into the club and like partying and then like automatically like flirting like with this with this girl. Right, like who is like who's going to be his like alibi. Right, like, right, versus right. like but then shows that like oh he's still you know he's still a playful scamp and he gets the Jack Sparrow gets like slapped across the face where he's like oh you you uh, uh whatever she calls him like right. you, you, you um but uh so it's just interesting like it, it's a real fun study in seeing that essentially you can find these parallels between just the openings of both of these episodes, but then just like how they present it and how wildly different it is in the details. And I think a lot of that too, it, it, I think one of the things I was also going to say, like, as you just see these two episodes back to back is very much also, I think that that second episode, you know, not necessarily like tells you like we're the sixties, but like is a little bit more kind of feels a little bit more modern because, you know, like, Simon's like stealing these these diamonds and he like escapes the police and he goes on this chase and then basically his kind of like escape plan is to be in this club where like obviously like the there's like the girl who's like singing and it's very like 60s kind of hip everybody's kind of hip and young there whereas like in that first episode there's very much like you could have placed like that's very much like yes like it's kind of updated a little bit from like the novel to like not put it in World War II which was then that book was originally written but at the same time, you could also have placed that like a Cary Grant in that type of role in like a 1950s. Right. And it would have been like, because it's like general, like he's in Hamburg, Germany. There's like a seedy underground sailor bar. And, you know, there's kind of like, you know, there's nothing really there that like it's a little bit more like old fashioned in that sense. Uh, so it's very interesting to even see that where it's like as soon as they get to like that escape route episode, that season five episode, there's a little bit more like, okay, we're it just kind of places you in kind of like the modern context of the 60s, 60s even more, which I think just adds to the different feeling of that episode. Right, right, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th- that's kind of how I felt about, you know, it, I think as always uh, it was more interesting to see you know more and to see yeah. you know how how he fit into all of this and then yeah honestly i didn't really have too much else to say about like the actual episodes themselves other than that macro thing i mean it was it, super fascinating to see them back to back in that way i definitely just i just had fun watching them like mm-hmm. again like i said like nothing to binge nothing to like oh this is my new series i'm going to be watching now but like i definitely have like a color a couple of other episodes that were under consideration that i'll probably check out especially because they're free um, I, uh, you know, it's just cause it's, it's basically like, you know, like the escape route thing. It's just like, oh, like they like, you know, they have these people pay to like get escape from prison and then they end up killing them and take all their stolen money or all their stuff. And so bond, not bond, uh, more, uh, as Templar is trying to like figure this out. And then like he, you know, they eventually like have a big fight in the boat at the end. Uh, it, it was, it was funny. Other, some other parallels between the episodes in terms of the formula. Like it, 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 the, the big fighting never seemed to happen until like the, until, until the end. Yeah. Like that, that it's, it's all spies and maybe some chases, but mostly sleuthing up until, right. until the end. Very sleuth. There, there's always like, at least in the two episodes, there's always like maybe some, um, at best, like a bad guy, like a like a morally gray 
bad guy who's not quite the bad guy who bites it so in our first episode we have like one guy who died and then like right you know, like the, the first episode it was like a guy who's in on the you know um this art smuggling thing but he gets too nervous because because simon's like you know going about and he like you know he had to like you know their original sailor that they're going to send the thing with was like oh like he was actually working with simon so like this guy killed him and he's like i want out and then the psychiatrist kills him yeah. and in the second episode it's like the buddy you know donald sullivan yeah he bites it he bites it yeah yeah um and which was i should mention that was kind of fun to, to see donald sullivan in a in a, in a role like yeah. that that early but it's like because i also i did kind of like that first like the fight because like again you see simon go to prison and he gets bunked you know he gets in the room with these other guys and it's like they're like messing with him it's like you're the famous simon templar like you know i'm yeah i'm not gonna tell you what bunk of the bed i want and then they kind of have like a nice like little bravado fight right right um which was kind of fun but yeah so donald um, sullivan and then and then the other the other thing i, I do have to mention is that the first episode has a dark ending yeah. to it. Yeah. I was about to mention One this. One yeah. that, like, I, I think out of anything that, like, genuinely surprised me, it was that. And, you know, not lasting. It was just more of, like, oh, that was a shock. I heard, I heard you, like, whoa. Yeah, well, I just didn't see it coming. So, because, like, basically, you know, there, there's this whole big thing. Like, the, the, the B plot is is that this girl that, you know, he he's had a past relationship with is in uh has a relationship with our villain of the episode who's the art smuggler who is also her um her psychiatrist and you know they kind of play with this whole thing because she you know she has her own mental inner demons that she's working out with and like this guy is kind of like manipulating manipulating her her, but like is likes her but in that bad guy way um and you know she feels like um emotionally and mentally trapped that like she's like no you know he he's helping me get better and then you know bond you know bond was the like the same thing um templar tries you know does the like i'm not gonna say full-on problematic but definitely kind of like they okay we i think we know a little bit more about mental health now than we did then yeah uh but does the whole like you could just just snap out of it but you know but again i i want to say this it speaks more to Roger Moore because, like, if any, if that was acted any other way, it would definitely be problematic. If it was like, like Connery, if it was Connery who would just basically have this tone of "snap out of it, woman." Like, if yeah. it was just like that, but like, you know, Moore kind of does this. You know, he's kind of coming from this, um, like, listen, don't let this other man mentally manipulate you. At least that's how it emotionally comes off. Yeah. Um. So it is funny that there's just that kindness he exudes. So anyway, so that's like a whole plot line. And it all leads up to, like, is she going to do the right, right thing and break free from the, the bad guy's right. hold and help Because at the Simon. end of the episode, that's when we talk about he's in the sailor disguise. Yeah. Where he's got, like, Which, this- by the way, great disguise. Yeah, it was like, good. I-, I thought the makeup on that was yeah, very cause, top Because he has, like, a beard and, like, a scar. And it's like, he does look like a different person. But, like, he, he approaches her, you know, because he's trying to pose as, like, the next sailor and, mm. like, the police and er, and the, the American guy that's working with him as outside. Um and he's basically like, listen, like if, it, if something happens, like you need to call this number so that the police can come in. Uh, so then like he like, you know, acts and he's pretending to be like this Norwegian guy. He sees like, you know, he gets like the the goods essentially. And uh, then this big fight breaks out where like his gun, you know, the barman like kicks and that's our big fight of the episode. And then 
the the psychiatrist gets the gun and mm-hmm. is like gonna shoot uh Simon mm-hmm. and then the girl the ex girlfriend like runs in front and gets shot yeah and gets and killed. dies and dies yeah and gets killed like the end of the episode is like her dead in his arms yeah and then that was the end of the episode I was like jeez right she doesn't even like what? Finish, she doesn't even finish like her final sentence yeah that it's was like that was she's crazy. like it's gonna be okay and it's like I'm sorry for everything like she's like I'm sorry and I've her and then she dies yeah. and then and then it ends I, I thought that was a pretty like cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it it definitely, if anything, got me more interested in, like, what tonally the episodes would take later on. Like, it it was that, because if they were willing to throw something like that in... Mm -hmm. Uh, then that that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, that was that was pretty much um all the notable things about the episodes I wanted to say. Was mm-hmm. there was there anything? No, I kind of I kind of liked uh sort of just like just from a writing standpoint, I kind of liked sort of the the bureaucracy of like the uh the uh the prison escape people where it's like they have like this whole system down, and then like you obviously time and like breaks the system mm. in some ways or another. I kind of thought. That was fun. Um, there was like a fun line. I can't remember what it was with like the. Uh, oh, it's like it's just like kind of a very Bond moment. Uh, oh, I think I know which one you're talking where about. Where like you know he's like you know because the whole thing with like the escape the prison escape people is like he's trying to find like the ringleader of like this gang and um, and also like again prove this 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 woman's brother father's innocence. So he goes to like you know eventually he meets with like the head of this thing and like he has a crossbow and he's like oh like I shot this line with this crossbow because it's like most fun, more fun. It's like are you familiar with the crossbow or whatever and then and then Simon just like hits a bullseye right away and it's mm-hmm. like that was like the most one of the most bond moments. There there the episode. there was another one I was thinking of in the first episode where um and I I'm going to botch like the specifics of it but the bad guy basically says like, "Oh, you seem to have a habit of getting into trouble, Mr. Oh. Devil." And then, and then he's like, "He's like a habit." And he's like, "Well, don't make it sound so dull or something yeah, like that." Like, 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 yeah, <laughs> like that's like don't use the like the word habit makes it seem like it's a dull thing. Yeah, like, yeah, that, like, that's what it was. It's like it's like, it's like it, it's become dull. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I, I thought that was a that good was a line. Good, that was a very line that that seems. If there's a line again, we didn't see it specifically, but it's like if there's a line that describes like the the basic concept of the Simon Templar character, right. I think it's more. And bad. that was like the most smart ass thing that he said in, right. in both of the episodes, really. Yeah. So, right. Um, do we do we dare even say who Harrison Ford could have possibly be? I, I feel like during these times he would have just been like, like, uh, like a like a barkeep or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, like this was in like early career, so right. definitely like he would have been like you know a, he could have been a carpenter in the right. in the back in, in or like he would have been background. he would have been like you know when they're at the prison in the second episode like he would have been like just one of the like not the guard that like chases after them like when they're escaping in the helicopter but like another guard yeah. that like maybe has one line or something like he, that. he would have definitely been like somebody who like you know what he would have been like when they go to the police station. He would have just like it would have been like where were those uh, where were those forms yeah. uh, that, uh, that that we were talking about and then Harrison Ford would just be like the random kid who would just give him the forms yeah. and then that would be his role uh, at, at this time so yeah all right so uh, into a little bit of uh, aftermathy stuff uh, so Moore's desire to become uh, a big star uh, through the Saint was fulfilled the saint was an immediate hit for the bbc one of the more popular shows alongside the avengers um which uh shot next to um uh the the sound stages in which the saint was formed actually the saint i was one thing i should say is that 
The Saint was very different than other shows too because it was also a show that they did a lot on sound stages, but also weren't afraid to like go on location. It was like one of those things too. Uh, but they they like the BBC had like got two big hits with The Saint and The Avengers, um, which also coincided with the Bond films coming up. So that all kind of was a perfectly timed where like Moore had been struggling for so long to kind of find a place, mm-hmm. and he had he found he basically found this role at the perfect time. Uh, Moore became a big television star within Britain. Um, the series did run uh, occasionally in America. There wasn't a set like, oh, we're, you know, NBC would air episodes, um, uh, especially the color episodes later on, like seasons five and six they would air. Um, it was popular in America, but wasn't like a huge smash hit, mm-hmm. um, which, again, you know, we're, we're kind of more became more known in America through Bond. Um, but there was still kind of a, a knowledge of the saint uh, on American shores, um, especially because uh, some of the later episodes, or at least two or three episodes from the later seasons, were like kind of two parters that the American audiences were presented to as TV movies of the week. Um, the show ran from 1962 to 1968. As I mentioned, the last two seasons, season five and six, Moore became a producer, a director, basically a showrunner on the show as well. And essentially at the end of that sixth season, he was just kind of feeling burnout of the character. Like he still loved playing Simon. Like he still loved the saint. Um, but he just felt that it, had, it was time to kind of move on. And it was time for him to get another shot at the film thing. Um, but more always had a big reverence for the saint character um, to the point where he, was the official president of the Saint Fan Club from the time the series ended all the way to his death. Uh, and he he basically literally, like even when he was playing Bond, he legitimately ran the, the fan club, um, which would celebrate episode air dates and book uh, releases and, and stuff like that as well. Um, so then Moore, of course, went tried to do the film thing again, didn't really work out right away. Uh, so he did another show for the Americans called The Persuaders, which I at one point called the show called The Pretenders. It is The Persuaders. Um, and that show's cancellation led to him being Bond. Um, to review, actually, um, the Bond producers, uh, uh, even before The Saint, um, uh, uh, Cubby Broccoli had always liked more. Uh, and like, he was like on a list for Dr. No, but he was like never officially asked for the role. It was just kind of like a consideration type of thing. Um, but more was considered for stuff like, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and, um, uh, but he was not available at the time. It was like kind of right in the last season of The Saint. And then obviously Connery comes back for Diamonds Are Forever, but by the time, uh, Live and Let, uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Live and Let Die, uh, comes onto screens. Moore is finally available and free of his saint obligations. And it was basically like the first choice. And it was like, and, and I guess like, cause Moore is very much someone who, if you ever, you know, when he was, when he was alive and it's like, if he ever got a chance to talk about bond or the saint, like you could just see the love that he still had for both of those properties. And he became Bond in many people's eyes, but there's still that subside, especially British audiences, that still kind of associate him with the Saint character. Um, so in terms of what the future of the Saint was, um, there was an attempt at a revival in 1978 called Return of the Saint, which featured a man named Ian 
ugly as Simon Templar, which was like basically it was like it wasn't necessarily like a continuation of the Moore series, but it took a lot of the same tropes and and visual stylings mm-hmm. of it. So there was there was that. Um, otherwise, there were a couple of attempts to do movies and television shows again after that 1978 series, um, but uh, the only one that ever came out was the uh, um, the Val Kilmer mm-hmm. film in 1997, which basically has nothing to do with the Simon Templar character. It's just kind of like they take it's one of those things like they take the name Simon Templar. And then that's basically all. Well, they take they because I look I I did look this up and there was like at least some of the the premise of him being like a like a right like like it's like generally a like like the general idea um but it really like kind of it's a little bit more of again a darker mm. movie uh, right, though right. though more makes a cameo in there oh really uh, oh that's he, fun. he's like a radio voice oh that's funny um uh and then there was one more attempt in two thousand and twelve to do a television series uh, that was going to be Canada produced that was going to star, that was going to be produced by Moore. Um, uh, Adam Reiner was going to play Simon Templar. And uh, the, for the first time on screen, it would have been the Patricia Holm, the girlfriend character uh, was going to be portrayed by Eliza Dusku. Oh, okay. Um, and actually Moore uh, and uh, the other St. Uh, uh, Ian Ogley uh, had cameos in the pilot, but eventually it was reshot as a movie and released after Moore's death in honor of him. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and we talk about Moore, and it's like, you know, it's just interesting because, again, he's so... The other... I mean, one of the things the last thing is to about Moore um, is what's fascinating about him in terms of his legacy is all the other actors we've talked about, Sans Lazenby, if we're talking about, like, the main Bond actors... They're all actors who have really gone on to do a variety of things. You know, like Connery is still Bond in a lot of people's eyes, but he had that like 80s run of doing Highlander and, you know, he won an Oscar for The Untouchables and, you know, he's in Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. Dalton kind of has that fun just kind of career where he's in stuff like Hot Fuzz and and he's doing like, you know, he was in, you know, he's doing um, uh, the DC show, uh, Doom, Doom Patrol. Patrol. Uh, and, he, you know, he's been in a bunch of other kind of stuff and he's done some TV and like, Brosnan, yes, he's very associated with Bond, but again, he has he's had his own kind of renaissance recently and stuff like that. Whereas, like Moore, very much is specifically those two characters. He's known for being Simon Templar. He's known for being James Bond, and there's like that is his legacy. Mm. And it was also something that like that was his, and he embraced that legacy. Um, you know, obviously, like he also tried to promote that his, his passion for UNICEF and working with children. That was also a big part of like, especially later in his life. But I think like a lot of times when bond actors leave or when they've been bond, there is kind of this inherent, Oh, I need to distance myself from bond type of thing. Right. And it also kind of worked out because more, even by the time it was obviously like he came into bond very late in his age. So, by the time he did, like, you know, by the time he left after View to a Kill, he was basically essentially done with acting. Again, like, take or, take or leave a Spice World here or there. Uh-huh. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, it wasn't that as if he was trying to pursue other roles or other things. But, like, there was even, like, while he was Bond, it was just like, he loved being Bond. While he was Simon, he loved being Simon. And so much of who Moore was, was embracing that as his legacy and 
is celebrating it in in more ways than on maybe other Bond actors really have or had. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, all right, well, that's all I have to say. All right, couldn't say any better myself. All right, well, next time on the Bond side of things, we are going to stick in the world of '60s television, and no, we're not going to look at the we're not going to look at the Val Kilmer Saint. <laughs> Uh, we have an unofficial trilogy to finish up of film adaptations of 60s television programs. We have looked at the world of Mission Impossible on film. We have looked at the world of uh, Man from Uncle on film. And would you believe we still need to look at the late 2000s adaptation of Get Smart? Yes, is- this is this is one uh, close to my heart. I think you're going to be... I think some of us talking about Get Smart, I think you're going to be surprised by... Uh, just what this property means to me. Yeah, we talked so. about it a little bit, but I, I'm excited to kind of take a look at the Steve Carell and yeah. Matt Hathaway and The Rock. It's gonna be fun. All right, cool, cool. All right, um, and then, but next time is not a Bond episode. It is a Godzilla episode in which we are finally making um, Nick and the uh, listeners' dreams come true, and we're finally watching War of the Gargantuas. I'm super, I'm super excited because you know it's Showa era. Uh-huh. It's it's weird shit. It's like you know I don't know if we've seen any. I've I've seen that one thing in 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 Tokyo SOS. Right. That's, <laughs> that's the only knowledge I have of this movie, and you know me, I love a good Showa era film. Well, you're gonna get it. I'm hoping it's it it really makes my dreams come true. All right. Well, uh, that's it. We're done. I'm done. You're done. Plug away. All right, it's bonzillapod at gmail.com, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, facebook.com slash bonzilla007. Like and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Go ahead and leave a rating and review if you do like us. All right, and until next time, take care.